thank you very much for that generous introduction, Bob. It's a delight to be here, and I must be one of the last Latter-day Luddites who refuse to use PowerPoint um, because it drives me batty, uh, and I don't know what effect it has on the audience, uh, but uh, I do not use PowerPoint. Uh, one of these days, I'm sure it's going to catch up with me. Um, um, the talk is divided into three distinct segments, and I'm going to talk about, uh, the and it's in the form of periodization, and I'm going to talk about three distinct periods in India's foreign policy and try and explain what explains the kind of transformation that has taken place in India's foreign policy during these three distinct periods. The first period runs from 1947 to 62, the second from 62 to 91, and from 91 to the present day. These three periods that I have identified are not arbitrary by any means, and I will try and show that there are compelling reasons why I could believe that there are sort of structural breaks uh, in between 47 to in, in the period uh, after 62 to uh, 91, and then from 91 uh, to the present day. Uh, because I, be, I do believe that India's foreign policy has undergone fundamental transformations at these three important junctures. And we are really in an era of revolutionary change as far as India's foreign policy goes. And I use that word revolutionary advisedly. The first period from 47 to 62. <clears throat> this is a fascinating period and a period which is dominated one person is sort of primus inter Paris, and it's Jawaharlal Nehru, the architect of India's foreign policy. And in large part, he was the architect of India's foreign policy primarily because very few people in the nationalist movement in India had had any experience or knowledge of international affairs. And consequently, he dominated the entire Indian cabinet and essentially shaped his views and his beliefs about the world, shaped India's foreign policy, and none of his colleagues were his equals when it came to the shaping of India's foreign policy. And this is in many ways a bit of an anomaly because here is a man who's passionately committed to the development of institutions. And in fact, almost in a, like a school teacher, hectors members of parliament about the importance of following rules, regulations, norms, and the creation of institutions in India, uh, particularly in the domestic arena. But there is a supreme irony over here. Foreign policy, simply because there is the attentive public in India is exceedingly small at this time, and also because his colleagues are not especially interested or knowledgeable about foreign policy, he has virtually carte blanche in terms of shaping India's foreign policy and the institutions of India's foreign policy. And this has important consequences for policymaking in the years ahead because he does not develop a kind of institutional cadre which can then carry out uh, uh, policy in the absence of charismatic leadership. Um, and this is, a, 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 this is really an important anomaly, given his obsession with the development of institutions which can function regardless of who happens to be in power. But the one arena where institutions are not developed adequately is in the foreign policy realm, primarily because of his towering and sort of preeminent 
position uh, in the uh, foreign policy arena. What is the content of this foreign policy? It is nothing short of revolutionary in some ways. And it largely stems from the colonial experience. Um, he is terrified that if India aligns itself with either of the two emergent power blocks, India's independence will become compromised, that India will simply become a stooge of either the Soviets or uh, the emergent uh, Western bloc, and thereby he enunciates this doctrine of non-alignment about which I don't need to elaborate, but there are certain attributes to his foreign policy that really need to be spelt out. And it's nothing short of revolutionary in that he seeks to forge a completely normative world order. And the components of the world order that he visualizes uh, have, the, have the following attributes. An emphasis on multilateralism and particularly the development of international institutions. Um, and to this end, uh, he involves India, despite its lack of material power, through sheer persuasion and through sheer personal effort in playing a role in the Korean War, um, uh, in diffusing uh, 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 an end to the Korean War uh, through the Neutral Nations Repatriation Commission in which India plays a vitally important role. Subsequently, as the French are withdrawing from Indochina, India becomes involved in something called the International Control Commission involving uh, uh, Canada and, and Poland. Um, uh, there are also attempts to create uh, a form of Asian solidarity, which obviously does not work out very well. But certainly those efforts are underway, the emphasis on the development of regional and international organizations, which will try to all ameliorate and hobble the use of force in international politics. He also is passionately committed to disarmament. And indeed, it's a little-known fact that as early as 1952, he introduces something which is sort of the incipient basis of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, um, which is called the Standstill Agreement. With the Irish, he introduces a, uh, uh, a resolution in the United Nations General Assembly calling for a standstill agreement, essentially uh, a comprehensive test ban in its, in its incipient form. Obviously, this does not quite work out. Uh, but the attempts are underway, and the attempt is to create a, almost a Wilsonian order uh, to transform uh, and hobble power politics and to, uh, uh, to create this kind of normative global order. These are the attempts at an international level. What happens, uh, and there's one other very important component, and that is the emphasis on decolonization and in an incipient form also an attempt uh, to bridge the north-south divide, something that is going to be taken up by his successors, but mostly in the form of caricature, as I will talk about in a moment. <clears throat> at a domestic level also, despite extant threats, about which he is more than cognizant. It's not true that he was not aware of a threat from China or a threat from Pakistan. He felt that these threats could be dealt with 
through low defense spending as far as Pakistan is concerned because he recognizes that Pakistan's industrial base is much smaller and its ability at mischief-making is limited. He is concerned about uh, Pakistan's military pact with the United States as early as 1954, um, which alienates him from the United States to a large extent, but nevertheless feels that India's ability at self-help is sufficient to deal with Pakistan and that Pakistan does not pose an enormous threat. But with China, when a number of his colleagues, uh, particularly, uh, uh, not a number because there are very few who knew much about international affairs, but one or two of his colleagues who are astute and fear that the border dispute with China at some point is going to explode and alerts him to it, he says, I'm more than cognizant of the threat that we face. I am not um, unaware of the threat that we uh, face from China, but I am also interested in limiting defense spending at home. And in any case, and this is one of his uh, great errors, I would say, he assumes that because he's trying to build this web of international organizations and emphasis on the avoidance of the use of force um, to, uh, in international affairs, uh, and because of India's sheer size, that the great powers will not be oblivious to India's plight, um, especially that given that India is not pursuing a particularly provocative defense policy, that in the event of a conflict with China, invariably the great powers will come to India's assistance. Rather naive assumption, but nevertheless, it is, he makes this amply clear in letter after letter of diplomatic correspondence um, and internal correspondence where he says we really need not fear um, uh, a major conflagration with China. And in, in the unlikely event that does happen, we can always count on the great powers because no one is going to allow such a major country in the world to be overrun uh, by, by com communist China. And he systematically squeezes defense spending even after the border dispute arises. In fact, between 1962, between 60 and 62, 62 is when the border war takes place with China, Indian defense spending actually declines as a percentage of GDP over, uh, in, uh, between 1960 and 62. There is, of course, Quite apart from the other, uh, the, his uh, uh, interest in hobbling the use of force, in moving towards uh, uh, the uh, uh, multilateral re resolution of international disputes and the peaceful resolution of international disputes, there is admittedly another concern. He is also very concerned about the dangers of Bonapartism at home. And this is reinforced by the fact that as early as 1958, the other major uh, legacy of the British Empire, Pakistan, undergoes a military coup. And he peers across the border and he says, this is the same army that I have inherited. It's only a portion of that army. And I'm not so sure that I have successfully managed to instill certain values of civil military relations and the preponderance of the civil authority. And consequently, I have to keep the military under my thumb. So there is a domestic component to this, which one should not overlook. But it would be 
partial to suggest that it was only domestic concerns that was driving him. He is passionately committed to this vision of a completely different world order um, uh, with the attributes that I have uh, sought uh, to spell out. All of this comes down crashing like a house of cards in October 1962. When for several months prior to that, negotiations have broken down, not just several months. In fact, the last negotiations are held in 1960. And after that, there is a detailed exchange of um, uh, information and claims and counterclaims about the border, about the Himalayan border with China. And during 60 to 62, India pursues a policy which was militarily utterly flawed. It was a form, I mean, essentially it was a form of compellence failure, uh, put, to put it very bluntly. Because in India engages in a strategy of compellence. It sends in lightly armed troops in what are called penny packets into areas that the Chinese have claimed. But as an Indian general told me once, these penny packets had neither teeth nor tail. They lacked firepower, and they didn't have the necessary logistical support. It's one of the dumbest things you're going to do if you're pursuing a strategy of compellence. Because if your adversary takes you on, you are going to collapse like a house of cards. In 1962, the Chinese get simply tired of these penny packets coming into areas that they have deemed to be theirs, and they attack with considerable force. Uh, the Indian defenses absolutely crumple. And it is a complete military debacle to the point that you have troops fighting at altitudes of 16,000 feet without thermostatic clothing in October, um, without, with canvas shoes, with bolt-action Lee-Enfield rifles of World War I vintage against an army that has taken on the U.S. Army in, in Korea, uh, a battle-hardened, uh, ideologically charged uh, army of a highly authoritarian state. The, it is a total military debacle. Um, the Indians, I mean, my constructivist colleagues would have a field day of how the Indians have tried to burnish uh, the image of the Indian army of loyal soldiers standing, you know, to the last man, um, you know, uh, frozen in machine gun nests as the Chinese overran them, uh, as the PLA overran them. But that's largely for purposes of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, uh, of nationalist history. Uh, the, the, the tragedy is the military was put in, in a completely untenable position, and it, it's, a, it's a total military debacle through no fault of the Indian military, which had warned about the very real dangers that they confronted along the Himalayan border, but were dismissed out of hand. Uh, just a, a little anecdote to drive the point home, and this is, uh, uh, this is not an apocryphal story. In 1962, the Indian ordnance factories were manufacturing coffee percolators. Uh, that gives you an idea of the complete degree of unpreparedness um, for dealing with a 1,500-mile uh, border which was left mostly unguarded. Um, there is literally a sea change in 1962. Uh, in fact, 
1962 in many ways kills Nehru off. By November 1964, he's dead. Um, he has a heart attack shortly after 62 and a second heart attack in November 1964, and he dies. And uh, having interviewed people who were very close to him, they make it amply clear that it, the, uh, the collapse of his whole vision of a world where he could hobble the use of force, where India would take the lead thereof, um, uh, uh, and also uh, that disputes could be settled through negotiation and compromise, had come down com had completely collapsed, and he knew, he was well aware of that. And by 1963, there's a completely new defense plan, even under his watch, which calls for the creation of a million-man army equipped with uh, uh, 14 new mountain divisions, equipped for high-altitude warfare, the creation of a high-altitude warfare school, which exists even till this day, the creation of a 45-squadron air force equipped with supersonic aircraft, and a modest program of naval uh, modernization. Uh, in effect, uh, a complete transformation of defense policy. There is a brief moment of cooperation with the United States, and suddenly the compunctions of non-alignment are set aside. And there's a major military assistance program that starts in New Delhi, one of the largest in the world outside NATO. But it's torpedoed fairly quickly. Why? Because of Pakistan. The Pakistanis object vehemently to this and say that the Indians are merely using this as a ruse to build up their capabilities to attack us. There is really no Chinese threat. And if you continue to go down this road, you meaning the United States, Remember those bases in Peshawar, which you are using for reconnaissance flights over the Soviet Union, Soviet Central Asia. Those basing rights come to an end tomorrow. The U.S. buckles because Pakistan is deemed to be much more important. And, of course, India's prickliness and earlier, uh, uh, you know, earlier behavior had not exactly endeared Nehru uh, to American decision makers. What happens uh, then after 1962? It's a very dichotomous foreign policy that emerges. It's a peculiar amalgam of the rhetoric of non-alignment, but India increasingly starts behaving like a realist state. Uh, there is a strident critique of, uh, in terms of uh, maintaining this non-aligned rhetoric, this strident critique of the American escalation of the war in Vietnam, despite the fact that India, it entails significant costs. Um, Johnson, for example, becomes so irritated that at one point he takes personal control over food aid to India, which came to be known as the infamous ship-to-mouth policy. Uh, more on that during the Q&A if anybody cares, uh, if anyone's interested. Um, in 1975, um, uh, uh, during this period, I'm only going to point out some epochal events. I'm not going to give you a complete historical narrative. Uh, I just want to make the argument that on the one hand, the rhetoric and the commitment to non-alignment non in some fashion still lingers on because no one is prepared to question Nehru's legacy because he's still sort of an iconic figure in Indian, um, uh, uh, in Indian national politics. And consequently, no one at this point has the courage to say, look, this is not working, particularly with the Congress Party still dominant in India, uh, which is the party that Nehru had belonged to and had brought India independence. No one is prepared to say that for all his 
great contributions to India on this issue. He was fundamentally wrong, and we need a change, of course. The political coalition that needs to be mustered just isn't there. And consequently, you continue with policies which are completely, which are hurting you. Uh, for example, the strident critique of the Vietnam War, which entails significant material costs uh, because it really irritates and understandably uh, irritates the United States. Subsequently, in 1975, after uh, the, uh, the 73 war and the quadrupling of oil prices, India joins this effort at the creation of the new international economic order. Even though India, as an oil-poor nation, is being gored by the quadrupling of oil prices. It has disastrous domestic consequences. But nevertheless, India spearheads this effort at this creation of this new international economic order using the power of OPEC. And, uh, um, and ultimately, well, what emerges is actually deleterious to India in a whole variety of, of material ways. So despite these kinds of residual commitments uh, to the Nehruvian world, worldview, there are other things which go in a completely different direction. So you have this peculiar amalgam of, on the one hand, this Nehruvian vision of world order, and at the same time, a partial embrace of realism, which sort of uh, makes little or no, has little or no intellectual uh, coherence and makes uh, even less sense in terms of its foreign and security policy. Um, the steady growth of Indian military prowess, on the other hand, by 1971, a formal alignment with the Soviet Union uh, for fairly compelling reasons, um, and a willingness to use force against uh, uh, India's principal adversary in 1971, Pakistan, to essentially break up Pakistan, uh, arguing on the grounds of humanitarian intervention, but it had nothing, nothing or to, little or nothing to do with humanitarian intervention for the simple reason that by the time India intervenes in the civil war, for all practical purposes, the killing in East Pakistan has stopped. Uh, if, you, if it was genuine humanitarian intervention, you would have acted in the March of 1971 when people were being slaughtered in East Pakistan uh, by the Pakistani army. But the intervention comes only in December. It's couched in the language of humanitarian intervention, but it has everything to do with delivering a coup de grace to your principal uh, adversary in the region uh, and thereby uh, creating a separate uh, state uh, which will be politically quiescent um, and basically under your thumb, uh, namely Bangladesh. So you have this sort of peculiar tension that emerges during this period. This tension is finally resolved in 1991. And it's a peculiar convergence of structure and contingency that comes about in 1991. The structural reasons are fairly obvious. The Soviet empire ends by about 1990. India had been closely aligned to the Soviet Union 
for fairly uh, compelling reasons, principally having to do with China, especially after 1969, following the, Sovi uh, the Ussuri River clashes, where uh, the Chinese and the Soviets are at odds. And then subsequently, uh, the American dalliance with, with the PRC, which made India especially nervous, uh, and th thereby solidified the Indo-Soviet uh, mili military uh, nexus. But all this basically comes to an end with the collapse of the Soviet Empire. And Gorbachev, in his last days, makes it amply clear to the Indians that in the event of a future war with China, don't count on us. Uh, you know. And uh, uh, while, yes, there is this treaty which we are about to renew with you, because uh, 20 years, uh, 1990 mar uh, marked, 1991 marked the 20th year of the treaty. Uh, but Article 9 of the treaty, which calls for consultations to remove uh, extant threats uh, to each other's national security, that's no longer operative. Uh, so the security guarantee that you had is essentially out of the window. It's history. It's consigned to the dustbin of history. India recognizes that it has to adjust to a fundamentally transformed global order in the wake of the Soviet collapse. Um, what does the uh, what happens as a consequence? It's a little-known fact, and unfortunately, the Ayatollahs of nonproliferation have written their own history because it's convenient for them. But since I have tenure, I don't have to count out to them. Um, there is a dramatic push in the Indian nuclear and ballistic missile programs after 1991. The record is amply clear. It's not a BJP bomb, contrary to the rubbish several people have written who will go unnamed. But they're not real political scientists. They're flax in Washington. Um, um, unfortunately, that's sort of the, you know, the received wisdom. Um, there's a dramatic push for the expansion of ballistic missile programs and the nuclear weapons program. By 1995, India is ready to test. In fact, there are preparations for the test, and the only reason the test is not carried out is because Ambassador Frank Wisner walks into Narasimha Rao's office, the Prime Minister's office, and says, we have you know, evidence of test preparations. And you carry out this test, we will sanction you to death. And Narasimha Rao, who had difficulty trying to make up his mind which side of the bed to wake up on on a given day, buckles. Um, so it's merely deferred to another regime. But all the preparations were in place by 1995. It had nothing to do with prestige. This is a palpably false argument, and that's the subject of another lecture. Um, there's an accelerated pursuit of a nuclear weapons program in the absence of a Soviet security guarantee, a dispensing of the commitment to third world solidarity, um, only sort of a rhetorical commitment, but no more tangible efforts to organize a third world coalition. Um, India increasingly in neg global negotiations ruthlessly pursues its own interests, everything from the Kyoto round to Doha. It's no longer going to save the poor and the dispossessed and the wretched of the earth. That's all dispensed with. Um, one I said this was a combination of structure and contingency. I've talked about structure. The contingency was really 
came in 1991. And it was a peculiar conjunction of events that forced India to abandon its commitment to third world solidarity abroad and the redistribution of global resources abroad and a completely new economic model at home. What happened in 1991 was a very strange convergence of circumstances. In the wake of the Gulf War, India had to repatriate about 130,000 workers from the Gulf. Not only did they have to pay the costs of repatriating them, they lost all the remittances from the Gulf, of running into about 20 to $30 billion on an annual basis. Not a trivial amount. Second, uh, third, India had also bought oil on the spot market, thereby depleting its treasury um, uh, uh, by early 1991. And fourth, in early 1991, a series of loans to multilateral institutions came due. It was a perfect storm. India had an impeccable record of meeting all its loan obligations. It had never defaulted. It was not about to default. It could have gone back to multilateral institutions, borrowed more money, and simply gone back to the namby-pamby socialism that it had pursued from 1947 onwards. Fortunately, and this is where agency and contingency play a very important role, you happen to have a finance minister who said, look, this strategy of economic growth is leaving us completely enmeshed and mired in poverty. Nearly 50 years after independence, more than 33% of our population is still living in abject poverty. If this is success, we should embrace failure any day. We need a new economic model. And of course, it was, he was helped in this matter because there's a global epistemic shift towards the market at this point. Uh, the, there's a global embrace of the market, and that, of course, assists him uh, and strengthens his hands. But clearly, here, uh, it was, you know, contingency and agency played a very important role in that you had individuals who were prepared to seize the moment and thereby bring about a fundamental transformation of India's both foreign economic policies and domestic economic policies, and thereby changing even the very structure of foreign policy. Uh, because it required improving relations with Southeast Asia to seek investment, to the, with the United States to seek uh, foreign investment, uh, and the opening up uh, and the concomitant opening up of India's economy. So, by the ninth, by, after 1991, you get a completely different foreign policy, a foreign policy that is much more pragmatic, a foreign policy that seeks to ruthlessly pursue India's interests, all the while making some nod towards third world solidarity, but not in any practical terms. In practical terms, you get essentially a realist state um, with some trappings and a patina, a gloss, just to keep certain domestic constituencies happy uh, so that you do not lose domestic support. But an increasing movement towards becoming a major power with the appropriate attributes of both economic and military power. That's the direction 
and the course of Indian foreign policy uh, from 1990, uh, 1991 onwards, and it's practically reached its sort of apogee at the moment. There is one curious feature uh, to all of this, however. Um, one would have expected, with the overweening American power and with the sort of the siren call periodically from Putin and Hu Jintao, um, that perhaps India, China, and uh, the former Soviet Union should form a kind of a balancing coalition. Um, and there are uh, some people in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs who uh, would like to respond to that siren call. Fortunately, uh, wiser counsel pre prevails uh, at, at higher levels. And that has, for the most part, been set aside. And despite some talk, including an, almost an entire issue of international security devoted to soft balancing, um, I don't see any evidence of soft balancing in Indian foreign policy. On the contrary, there is a steady sort of and growing alignment um, with the United States, and which did not start, by the way, with the Bush administration. It started as early as 1999, towards the tail end of the Clinton administration, um, for a whole variety of strategic and economic reasons, primarily economic and uh, uh, secondarily uh, strategic. And during the Bush administration, many of the uh, policies initiated during the Clinton period have really come to fruition and in many ways culminated most recently in the U.S.-India uh, civilian nuclear agreement, uh, which uh, uh, was uh, passed uh, in early December, despite widespread opposition uh, both in the United States and ironically in certain parts of India. Um, uh, we clearly are witnessing, in effect then, a revolutionary realignment of India's both foreign and security policies and a far cry from where India started out in 1947. Thank you very much. <coughs> yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely not. It was not an existential threat by any definition. Uh, but it was a serious border dispute. Um, and uh, um, uh, uh, the Indians had negotiated in good faith, but the problem with the Indian negoti negotiating position was that they had a relatively good case. The unfortunate thing is they, they made their case absolute, they should have been a, a bit more willing uh, uh, to, uh, to compromise with the Chinese on certain issues. Um, uh, it's a very, very complex story of how this evolved. And there is blame to be shared on both sides. The Chinese dissembled about the claims in the early years when Nehru raised them. And unfortunately, by the time uh, there was a prospect of compromise, um, uh, Nehru had withheld certain forms of information from, uh, to Parliament, and uh, his room for maneuver 
had really declined by 1960, at which point he adopted a completely unyielding stance. So there is blame to be shared on both sides in terms of, uh, um, uh, of the deadlock that the negotiations uh, uh, ended up with. But it was not an existential threat by any definition. Um, no, absolutely not. I think uh, uh, he should have, um, uh, given the evidence that the Indian Army was presenting to him, given that one or two of his advisors who knew something about the border had issued warnings, he should have devoted more resources to defense. The forward policy, that strategy of, of that flawed strategy of compellence, was disastrous uh, from every standpoint. Yes. Um, I obviously had to be telegraphic, you know, because I was covering an extraordinarily uh, wide canvas. Uh, but that's a very important and a very helpful uh, question. Um, uh, recall the second period that I talked about in Indian foreign, foreign and security policy is this period which is this peculiar amalgam of, on the one hand, commitment to non-alignment and inability to jettison the principles and precepts and and commitments to non-alignment, but at the same time, sort of this halfway attempt of embracing realism. Um, and uh, uh, what happens is, in 62, there's this disaster with China. Conventional defense spending dramatically expands as a consequence. But in 1964, China tests its first nuclear weapon at Lop Nor. There's a firestorm of a debate in 1965 and 66 in the Indian Parliament. And this is all, this, this, these are all open sources. The, you can read the parliamentary records. Um, the right wing in India and the right wing in the Congress party say, let's abandon non-alignment, align with the United States, uh, get a nuclear umbrella. And in fact, there is an attempt to obtain extended deterrence from the United States, from the Soviet Union, and from Britain. All three powers say, sorry. When that fails in 1966, the failure to get uh, a nuclear umbrella extended to India against uh, the possible you know, future Chinese malfeasance, that's when India embarks upon what is called the SN, no, Subterranean Nuclear, SNEP, the Subterranean Nuclear Explosions Project. Why SNEP? Because India was a signatory to the Partial Test Ban Treaty, so it can't test in the upper atmosphere. So the argument is, may, is couched, oh, we are doing this only because we are interested in making fissures in the Earth's crust 
to release natural gas, to move huge amounts of earth. And after all, the Americans were doing it in the 1950s, so there must be merit to it. Um, that's how it's officially couched. But this is literally and figuratively a subterranean nuclear uh, weapons project. And Indira Gandhi carries out the first test in 1974, as you correctly point out. But she, and this was a nuclear test. I mean, it was weapons test. Make, let, let's be completely clear about it. And she would have carried out more. But India's economy was in such dire straits after the 73 oil crisis that even with the mild sanctions that are imposed, she backs away. But the project then simply goes further underground. So all the components are put together during the 70s and the 80s. It's just that the posture of ambiguity is maintained. And notice also, there's an element of realism here. India refuses to sign the non-proliferation uh, non treaty, which would have effectively foreclosed the nuclear weapons program. In 68, India refuses to sign the NPT, even though the irony is that going back to the Nehruvian era, India was one of the principal proponents of the NPT under what was called the 18-nation disarmament conference, which metamorphoses into uh, the NPT conference. Uh, so that's the more co complete history. Randy? Not like about the world 
that it would want to change? What does it like about this US leadership? And you know, let's say they were in a position to put this block together, what would they change? First of all, the, there's a problem in putting that block together because um, the, um, um, uh, the, the Indians after 1991 came to the conclusion that why align with a decrepit power, this uh, former Soviet Union? Um, uh, uh, and secondly, uh, when there was this fleeting moment uh, 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 floated by, uh, forgetting the uh, Russian foreign minister's name at the time, um, forgetting the guy's name, uh, he floated this idea of a kind of a condominium involving China, India, and, this, and the former Soviet Union. Uh, the Indians said, look, the differences amongst us are greater than any you know, reason to balance American power. Uh, but wouldn't a realist say, you do, you do align with the decrepit power. You join the weaker side. If you start joining the top, more powerful side, then realism gets it every which way. Because then bandwagon realists and it seems to me like they're just following their a strict, you know, we're beyond. Well, anyway, I mean, you know. No, I mean, there is a, that's why I said there is an interesting anomaly here that one would expect, you know. And people like TV Paul are arguing in the pages of international security. There's soft balancing going on. And I say, where's the evidence? You know, where's the beef here? I just don't see it. Uh, and not only is India, to go back to your earlier question, not only is India building military power, uh, but it's increasingly willing to um, uh, use its military power uh, in the region. For example, during uh, it's quite subtle, but there are the first signs emerging. Um, uh, speaking of coalitions of the willing, in the wake of the tsunami, who were the four powers who were involved? India, Australia, China, Japan, and the United States. And when I asked how come the Chinese were not involved, I was given this very bland answer. Well, their English skills are not great and was difficult. The coordination was difficult for the navies. As if the Japanese Navy is known for their English skills, English language skills. Um, this was not accidental. Um, uh, the growth of military cooperation between India and the United States uh, it actually is counter-realist in many ways because realists would say you wouldn't see this kind of bandwagoning. You'd see the growth of some form of balancing. The evidence just, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting puzzle that we have to answer. Rick? Sometimes when I've been in India, I've been talking to people on the left who tell me, and, and even not so far on the left, that the Chinese threat is used by the government to justify its military policy actually doesn't drive the policy, and that the threats from China uh, are sea bases in Burma and these other unimaginable uh, Chinese land invasions across the Himalayas, the Himalayas and things, things that don't make sense. So if you take that perspective, then the real threat might come from the Muslim world, in which case there you could call it bandwagoning or they're just aligning with the common enemy is the United States. Um, Pakistan's an anomaly because the United States swung back after 9-11, right. but as we all know why, yeah. and it isn't a deep alliance. Yeah. And consequently, if that's, their, if that's where India's threat perception really is focused, that is more toward the Muslim world than towards India, I mean towards China, then this isn't so strange, right? Because the Chinese threat's not seen as imminent, the Muslim threat is. So you'll lie with the, that's how to also explain this very, uh, 
relations over this last six, eight years, where now I see a very strong Indian-Israeli cooperation, where previously India was always very reticent uh, to be very uh, outspokenly you know, aligned to Israel. Now it seems to have dropped that almost completely. Not in the late 70s, it moved towards Israel. But then, then it doesn't look like it's such a difficult problem for realism. You just have to identify where the threats come in. Yeah. If you cast the Muslim world in that light as a kind of a monolithic threat that's emerging, um, if, you, if, if you do cast it in that light, certainly then it starts uh, making sense. But as far as the Indian uh, left is concerned, um, uh, uh, there are few people in the world I have more contempt for um, uh, because they still insist that, um, you know, um, uh, in 1962, India was entirely at fault, uh, that India brought on the war. Uh, never mind uh, uh, that uh, even the most shameless apologist for Mao, a man called Neville Maxwell, who wrote a book called India's China War, he was a Trotskyite, um, a British Trotskyite, and still laments the end of the Cultural Revolution in his writings. Uh, even Neville Maxwell argues that the Chinese invaded India. Um, uh, so uh, as far as the Indian left is concerned, you know, uh, and these are also the same people who worked with the British during World War II, uh, collaborated with the British while Indian nationalists were in prison, and they ran around scot-free. Why? Because they were slavishly devoted to Stalinist Russia. Uh, so th these are people who on a good day I would take out and shoot. Um, um, so I don't pay too much attention to their analysis of where the threats lie. Um, you know, as a realist, I believe that when you have Chinese military bases in Tibet, which adjoin India, and when there are missile sites in Tibet, there's a reason to worry. I mean, we worried about, you know, a revolution in Nicaragua and some Soviet MiGs showing up. That became the grounds for supporting, you know, a covert war against Nicaragua. I think when you have fought a major border war with a country, a country that is your principal competitor in Asia on every dimension, when that country has missiles, presumably, and missiles really don't care about their trajectories. It all depends on where you turn them. There's a capability threat. You have to, you know, as a prudent military planner, think about that capability threat. Why is it that we have nuclear weapons today? Because nuclear weapons are fungible. They're, you know, they have military value. They have military utility. You know, why are we alienating our European allies, uh, expanding uh, the scope of missile defense um, into the Czech Republic and Poland uh, you know, now you could say that's folly, but that's another matter. Uh, the, the, the point remains that states plan against capability threats. And I don't see any attempt to sort of cite Sir Michael Howard at any attempt on the part of the Chinese to provide reassurance. Um, uh, the, uh, the flip side of deterrence is reassurance. There's been no attempt at reassurance. Uh, and steady penetration of Burma the support for the Pakistani nuclear program, where Pakistan basically becomes a strategic surrogate for China after the 1980s. 
the, uh, where does Pakistan get its uh, um, weapons designs? From China. Um, it, and, and this is your principal adversary, which can strike all your northern military bases with its missile technology. The M11 missile is transferred to, uh, by China to Pakistan. These are things that, unfortunately, the left, which I'm sure adheres to a constructivist worldview, um, can somehow explain away that these are merely matters of discourse, and I just have a different and wrong discourse. So, um, but that only answers part of your question. Uh, I, uh, this question about the Muslim world, I'm not so sure that with the world's second largest Muslim population that you could afford to build this anti-Muslim coalition, especially in a democratic country. I'm simply not sure that it's tenable. If people are being driven by this, I think it's a fundamental strategic error. Well, that's not for me to uh, say, but uh, um, uh, I suspect that a certain amount of the reliance uh, on Soviet military or post-Soviet military technology will remain simply because of path dependence. When so many of your components, component parts of your military are of Soviet origin, you just can't jettison and end half of your air force overnight. You don't have the resources to do that. So for a while, you will remain dependent. Um, uh, but I think it's going to become a strictly commercial uh, and interest-driven relationship. This, uh, um, uh, I, and I don't think there's any sort of, you know, there was an element, uh, a strand of Indian foreign policy that had a, a kind of an ideological affinity with the Soviet Union because of certain people within the Congress Party. That's gone. That's history. It's a, it's a very, very pragmatic relationship. Uh, and interestingly enough, there will be a certain amount of competition with the United States, for example, now with the civilian nuclear technology deal, uh, where both sides will seek to uh, sell reactors because India is planning on spending close to $40 billion uh, worth uh, um, of money on reactors over the foreseeable future. And the Russians stepped in right away. After and Putin <laughs> stepped in right away. Yeah. He didn't waste any time. Yeah, there are hints of it, but you don't see the clear outlines thereof as a strategy. As a strategy. But, but it's a yeah. Yes, I want to ask you about the economic changes that you could mention. So you said there isn't a shift towards them. Everyone knows that there isn't a shift towards market economy from a 
Yeah, um, and they're probably written by my leftist colleagues um, um, who are yearning for the days of namby-pamby socialism, which confined, uh, consigned 36% of the population at one point to below the poverty line. And when I once brought that up at one of these socialist bastions in India, they said, yes, had we not pursued it, Talk about counterfactuals, Randy. Uh, had we not pursued that, maybe 72% would have been below the poverty line. Uh, the, the, it's mind-boggling. In the last quarter, the Indian economy grew at 9.2%. In the next quarter, they're expecting double-digit growth. Um, poverty has declined from 33% uh, using World Bank figures in 1991 to 26% as of last year. Not trivial. Um, the so-called Hindu rate of growth, which is a pun on the secular rate of growth, uh, amounted to between 3.1 to 3.5% for over a span of 20 years. And then you took away 2% for population growth, leaving you an effective growth rate of 1.5% uh, during much of this period of namby-pamby socialism. Yes, have disparities increased in India? Undoubtedly, but most studies of economic development reveal that rapid economic development almost invariably, invariably gives rise to disparities. What the left is focusing on are the disparities. And some of the disparities, some of the anecdotal evidence certainly uh, is bothersome uh, in that you have people driving Bentleys in New Delhi and there are people on the outskirts of New Delhi who still live below you know, the official poverty line of $2 a day. And that's something fundamentally wrong. Uh, but there are ameliorative steps that the Indian state is undertaking, not always wisely, but nevertheless, in a democracy, this is unsustainable. Um, there, there will be uh, uh, costs at the ballot box, uh, as they were for the BJP um, uh, in the last election, when their campaign was India is shining, and it was for a certain segment of the population. It wasn't shining for lots of other poor, dispossessed people. But that's the advantage of a democratic state, where you can have used the ballot box as a way of addressing, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of gaping social inequalities. Um, uh, uh, I think India has a long ways to embrace the market before there's any danger of capitalism running uh, sort of rampant um, you know, and uh, uh, eviscerating uh, the rights of the poor. Um, uh, those dangers really uh, are, for the most part, misplaced. Uh, uh, there is there's a huge cushion that still exists um, uh, before uh, India ever uh, would get to that point of uh, having some form of buccaneer capitalism um, uh, unregulated in any form, uh, uh, th those dangers are, uh, quite frankly, grossly exaggerated. It's not. It's too simple to argue that it was purely 
uh, the forces of, you know, the uh, campaign on, of pro-globalization, pro-market that cost uh, uh, the BJP uh, the elections. There were other factors. There was also a middle-class revulsion against what happened, the tragedy that took place in Gujarat, where there was a pogrom against Muslims, uh, by, and which was uh, watched was basically with the complicity of the state, which is why I call it a pogrom. Um, and uh, secondly, uh, also it had to do with the peculiar coalitions in Indian politics um, where um, you aligned with regional parties and some of your alignments proved to be more successful than others where your regional partners either won or lost. And there the BJP made bad strategic calculations about who to align with. And since it's a coalition government, certain regional parties won, others lost. The BJP's, BJP just happened to back some of the losers. So I think it's, it's not monocausal, their loss. Though one strand of it clearly was related to a backlash against liberalization. I would not dismiss that. No, no. <laughs> I, I suspect it. <laughs> Do you want me to elaborate? Yeah, sure, sure, on both. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not irreversible because all you need is a major terrorist attack again. And it's going to come to a grinding halt. It it's happened. Now it happened in Bombay. I know. I know. Um, uh, but in fact, after Bombay, I was surprised. Yeah. Uh, my prediction was wrong. Um, but I think there are limits to the prime minister's tolerance. Um, I think the, the prime minister has made it a centerpiece of his foreign policy to try and improve relations with Pakistan. But at some point, domestic politics will force his hand or will stay his hand. What about all this talk about the joint uh, terrorism network and cooperation and all that? Um, bluntly put, that is the biggest fool's errand yeah, imaginable. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's absolutely – this is sort of like, you know, illegal Mexican migrants and the Border Patrol working together to police the Texan border. Right. It makes about as much sense. Mm -hmm. Their interests are fundamentally antithetical here. I mean, it's, it's, it's laughable. Uh, 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 it's a wonderful public relations ploy, but it, it, has, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and can one trust Musharraf? No. This is the man who was the architect of Cargill. Um, uh, this is a man who believes in tactical arrangements, has no long-term vision whatsoever, um, is clueless about a long-term strategy of, uh, of peace with India. Sure, sure. Um, it, it, this can result in ameliorative changes, but it doesn't resolve the structural problem, the fault line that exists along Kashmir, because the positions remain fundamentally antithetical. Uh, even Prime Minister Singh has ruled out territorial compromise. No border changes. No border changes. Um, and once you enunciate that, what's there to talk about? At least in the Arab-Israeli case, you have the possibility, however remote, of a two-state solution. There are some people on both sides 
who, you know, the contours of those states, the security guarantees that would be necessary, the international uh, commitments of the international community that would be necessary, these are matters of debate. But at least in a notional sense, there is the possibility of a two-state compromise. We don't have it here. Uh, on the one hand, you have the Pakistani position, which remains maximum, that nothing short of the valley, and no Indian government is going to commit suicide by conceding the valley. Not after 60 years. No, it's just not going to happen. And there's a fear of, of internal dominoes. There are so many issues involved uh, of conceding the valley. So it's, it, you know, I, I don't see uh, a breakthrough being imminent anytime soon. So what's the best way to deal with this? On the one hand, you have these, the Indian side talking about these confidence-building measures, something like Europe did after the Second World War towards integration. You worked with common issues such as poverty, environment, things like that, and then you worked up to the big one, Kashmir. The Pakistani side is saying, let's deal with Kashmir first. What kind of confidence do you want to build if the biggest issue remains unresolved? Right. So which, which is the best way to do this, or is there another way? It's a very simple way, and I've already written it. Uh, it, it unfortunately, there haven't been any takers. Uh, it's a simple realist solution. Over time, the trajectories of the countries will be so different, and the resources uh, uh, available to the military in the two countries will be so different that it won't matter. Who cares what the Pakistanis think? I mean, I, I, you know, that normatively that may not be may not make the tree huggers happy. But uh, after 60 years, what are you going to do? I mean, you've tried four wars. You've had multiple crises. You know, you know, you've had multilateral negotiations at the UN from 48 to 1960, uh, bilateral negotiations uh, from 62 um, to 63, subsequent bilateral negotiations, subsequent wars. You're no closer to a solution. It's very simple. At some point, you know, there is a wall. It's not a social construction. It hurts your head. Stop banging on it. Oh, it was to revive the uh, Kashmir issue. Yeah. Uh, what had happened by 1999 is that Indian security forces, through a mixture of three things, cooptation, extraordinary use of force, and um, uh, elections had managed to restore a modicum of order. And what was happening, the global community was saying, you know, a pox on both your houses. We really don't want to be hearing about Kashmir. There are other things that we want to worry about. And this was a way of reviving um, Kashmir, especially in the wake of the nuclear tests. And it, it made sense because, as a friend of mine, Paul Kapoor, is coming out with this book where he points out that uh, uh, he's arguing that it made the Pakistanis more adventurous because now they had the nuclear shield. But they just got hammered. Every time I look at it, I just can't understand what they were thinking about. They were thinking, well, this is where Steve Van Evera's work comes in very handy, false optimism. It's more like crazy. It, it's... it's it, it's false optimism. And in fact, I've even found a terrific article by a Pakistani uh, called F uh, Four Wars and One Illusion. But let me just, let me just, let me just say this just for a second. Yeah. That you would think that if both powers being nuclear, they would be more cautious. And, and yet here, Pakistan 
doesn't carry on between this work. It's just insane gambit. I don't know what that's yes, about. Yes and no. Uh, yes and no. And um, I'll give you a sneak preview of something, Randy. Just last week, we got a contract from Columbia. Um, Paul and I are writing a book as a debate. Is this number 30? Yeah, no, no. This is just number four. Uh, the others are edited books. They don't count. Uh, um, the, uh, this is uh, Paul and I are going to write a book as a debate looking at four cases where he's arguing that nuclear weapons have simply emboldened the Pakistanis and they are r so risk-prone that there's a real danger of escalation. My argument is, yeah, but they provoke India in places where it doesn't matter. In any case, you know, what's the bottom line? It didn't happen. What didn't happen? The nukes they dropped. Yeah. But is this the stability and stability paradox? Right, right. So we're, we're going to have this book in the form of a debate where we will look at the same empirical evidence with different theoretical lenses. And I'm arguing that, yeah, they are risk-prone, but they figure that the consequences are both calculable and controllable. And uh, there are certain red lines they won't cross. Uh, and, the, and the four cases show that um, deterrence is fairly stable. It, it was nasty. It was nasty. But it was carefully confined. There was no horizontal escalation. I'll long be dead. <laughs> oh, at least I thought you would say my lifetime. Jimmy, thank you very much. Not at all. My pleasure.